also King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah the son of Zadok the priest, Eli Horeph, and Ahijah the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat the son of Elihud, the recorder, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada over the army, Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Azariah the son of Nathan over the officers, Zabad the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend, Ahishar over the household and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Machez and Salbim, Beth Shemesh and Elon Beth Hanan, Ben Hesed in Araboth, to him belonged Succoth and all the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab in all the region of Dor, and he had Tafath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife, Baana, the son of Ahilud, in uh, Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beth Shean which is beside Zeratan, below Jazreel, from Beth Shean to Abel Mahola, as far as the other side of Jachneum. Ben Geber in Ramath Gilead, to him belonged the towns of Jer, the son of Manasseh. In Gilead, to him also belonged the region of Argob in Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo in Mahaniam, Ahimaz in Naphtali, he also took Besmeth, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Bana, the son of Hushai in Asher and Aloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Geber the sand. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all the all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had, had, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 
And these, go- these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to the King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees, from the cedar of tree of, the, of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So far in the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this, your word, and we do ask just for understanding and for insight that your spirit would teach us that we might grow to know Christ more deeply through this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, we considered in chapter 3 that Solomon asked for wisdom, and God said you're going to have wisdom and riches and uh, glory. And here in this passage, we see God coming through with his word, somewhat similar to this morning, right? We, we previously looked at Christ claiming something, then we saw him pull it off. Here we see God coming through with his word. And so as we look at this passage, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing his wisdom, his riches, and his glory and fame. We can start seeing all these things in terms of his wise administration. Solomon has a wise administration, verses 1 through 19. And I'm not going to repeat all the names, but I think one thing that we could have happen to us as we read all the names is we miss who they are. <laughs> we, we're trying to figure out how to pronounce it, or we're maybe making a connection. Oh, is this the Nathan that was the prophet, and these are his sons? So we get distracted, and we miss. This is the administration. This is Solomon's uh, team of counselors. And it starts off, we, we could look at verses 2 through 5, and we find four priests. So Solomon starts off with having four theologians, four Bible scholars as his counselors. That we see four priests listed here. Now, the one that might stand out to us if we're paying attention to kings is that Abiathar gets mentioned in verse 4. But Solomon's already stripped him of his office. So what do we do with that? Do we say this is just someone who had been a counselor and uh, ceased to be within the first couple of years of Solomon's reign? Uh, or what sounds more, more likely as we consider this passage, it seems to be giving us that satellite image of the bulk of his reign. And so the counselors seem to be people who were in office for a long period of time, maybe not all always at the same time, but um, at least major players. So it seems likely to me 
that Abiathar continues, having repented of his uh, rebellion and been forgiven, while not being permitted to retain his office as a priest actively, he is still given the honorific priest in his office as counselor. In other words, Solomon is still using the wisdom of this man, even though the man is no longer a mediator between God and Israel. He's understanding that this man has a lot of wisdom to offer, and he continues in office. That's at least one way we could understand that. But notice the four four priests as uh, counselors. And then he has two scribes, verse 3. And these would have kept records and chronicles. These would have uh, kept records, especially of things throughout the land. You know, on any given day, who of us can read all that takes place in the news in the world? Uh, And realize that uh, Solomon has messages coming in from all over his land every day. He can't read everything that every local mayor and dignitary writes down as a decision. He can't review everything that the court has pronounced. So he has these two men who are his scribes. They keep note of all of this in an orderly manner. Maybe when he's feeling insomnia, he does what, uh, is it Darius does and Nebuchadnezzar does and has uh, the scribes read to him so he can fall asleep. But he has two men who have an eye on the big picture of what's going on in the realm and are recording it. Then there's a recorder listed in verse 3. That took me a little off. Uh, What's the difference between a scribe and a recorder? Uh, But one of the commentaries suggests that the recorder was in charge of palace affairs, communicating public needs to the king and acting as the king's spokesperson. And so that, that is a little bit of a nuance, isn't it? It's, it's almost like a, um, uh, my mind's blank now, but the, the secretary in charge of media or whatever. That, that would be somewhat what this recorder is. So someone who's relating between the people and the king in that, in that city, in the capital, what's going on. And then there's a, a strong commander-in-chief of the army, verse 4, whom we happen to know is also a very godly man. Uh, there's a supervisor over the 12 district governors, verse 5, um, over the officers. That refers to the 12 men in charge of each district. So there's a guy who's in charge of the 12 governors. And then there's a supervisor over the palace staff, and a supervisor over the labor force. And I think those two are interesting because it shows that Solomon doesn't have any area where he has said, I have to be completely in charge of this. He has given up uh, his authority to those he trusts over even how his house is run. And that shows wisdom and humility. I don't have to do even that myself. Uh, I don't have to be in charge of the labor force myself. He has these supervisors. Now, now, uh, all that listed, 19 verses of our chapter, uh, which includes those 12 men from different regions and the wisdom of having them each cover his food for one month. There's a lot we could say about that. That keeps any one region from being responsible and bearing the full brunt of feeding Solomon. It also keeps... Uh, from favoritism because they all equally get the chance 
to share what God has given them at his table. There's, there are a lot of good things about that. But all of this in the first 19 verses, I think, has one very simple point that God is making to us with it. That wis- the wisdom of Solomon is a wisdom where he knows that it is best to use the wisdom of other people. God has said to Solomon, uh, I will give you wisdom. But Solomon doesn't then say, well, then I can do it all. I can't trust none of you. God didn't tell any of you in a dream that he would give you wisdom, but he told me. No, Solomon has this humility with his wisdom to say, one of the things God gave me is really great wise men. And you'll notice that a lot of these men are men that David had in his administration. They're gray-haired. They're older. The ones that are younger tend to be the sons of men who were David's chief prophet or other administrators. In other words, the the young ones even have been trained and mentored at home by older men as well. And so Solomon has this humility to say, I may have been given this wisdom from God, but I need to know what Abiathar thinks. Well, he's disgraced as a priest. Why would you listen to him? Because he has wisdom. And God gave that to him through many tears and pains and suffering and hardships. And I need to listen to that. So Solomon has this, this wisdom. And that's, that's something that comes out in the Proverbs, doesn't it? The importance of advice and counsel. Originally, I was going to have us do a responsive reading of Proverbs on those topics. But uh, here are just a few that you could look up. You could look up Proverbs 12, verse 15 or Proverbs 20, verse 18, but I'll share just these two. Proverbs 13, verse 10. Through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. That's pretty much what we're being told in this chapter as well. Proverbs 15, verse 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Well, that, that's what we're being shown in these 19 verses as well, isn't it? Solomon has 12 chief counselors, and he listens to them, and his plans aren't frustrated. It, it's astonishing, the wisdom that there is in humility and receiving counsel. Well, verses 20 through 28, we see Solomon's prosperous wisdom Um, And and this is in a a variety of ways. We're shown his prosperity in terms of the size of the population. Verse 20. Notice all it says. It doesn't give you a number. What does it give you? The promise of God to Abraham fulfilled. Not a bad day in the life of Israel to live. They were as the sand on Israel the seashore. At the very least, there's a partial fulfillment of God's covenant promise during Solomon's day. We also see the comforts of the population. It's one thing to say they were like the sand on the seashore, but um, there were a lot of Ukrainians in the 1950s who were starving. (laughs) Because they were having to send their entire field off to Moscow. 
you can see how Solomon could be exactly like that, hypothetically, right? We see how much food has to go to his house, how many horses he has just for his chariots, and each group is required to give uh, food and provision for a, a month every year. You could see how it could easily be a land where everyone is impoverished except Solomon. But the Holy Spirit shows us in this chapter that's not what this was. Because we're shown the comfort of the population. How can we define their daily living? The status of the people is simply eating and drinking and rejoicing. That's the Holy Spirit's analysis, not Solomon's. So we have here a day when the population is great and their situation is wonderful. We also see the size of the kingdom in verses 21 and 22. And here, if you go and you read your Old Testament promises from the Pentateuch, you'll find finally something that even David had not accomplished, even Joshua had not accomplished. This land described during Solomon's day is the first time and the only Old Testament time when all the territory God had promised to the children of Abraham actually belonged to them. Solomon is the only king who had all of the territory that had been promised. It's the golden age, isn't it? And, and then not only the size of the kingdom, the, the volume of palace provisions, 22 through 23, 26 through 28, it's a lot. We'll move on from that. You, you can see that, right? It's a lot. If you want to look at your Reformation Study Bible and find out how much, feel free. Um, and, and then also his prosperity in terms of peace, 24 and 25. No war, no enemy threatening his reign. The people dwelt securely. In the reign of Solomon, who, whose name in the Hebrew is Shalom, basically, Solomon, same root word. You have shalom. You have a completeness to the kingdom and a wholeness in God's covenant love to his people. Well, then verses 29 through 34 show us Solomon's honored reputation. And especially one verse stands out to me, and that's verse 29. Verse 29, God gave Solomon three things, wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand on the seashore. Um, Wisdom and understanding are very similar things, of course. They are both slightly distinct from just head knowledge. Wisdom is seeing the difference between good and evil, virtue and vice, and having good judgment. And Solomon himself will teach us that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Knowing right and wrong, good and evil, begins with the fear of the Lord. Understanding, one commentator has said, is the ability to discern intelligently the difference between sham and reality, between truth and error. So not just having head knowledge, but being able to look at all the stuff thrown at you and say, Uh, I don't believe that. It's a slight nuance from wisdom, but it's an important one, isn't it? He had both. The the moral, ethical wisdom 
the just smart understanding and ability to see through lies. And then he had largeness of heart from God. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Some commentators say that that simply means he had a lot of interests. He had largeness of heart. He had a lot of interests. He liked reading about trees and animals. He had a lot of hobbies. And obviously that's true. Verse 33 tells us that. But I I think that's missing what Scripture is saying here about largeness of heart from God. God is telling us that not only does he have wisdom and understanding, but he has wisdom that is not used in a stoic, cold-hearted fashion, but rather has empathy and sympathy for his people. Largeness of heart. That is, he really cares. There are a lot of really smart people whose IQs blow you away and they don't have empathy for others because they can't comprehend peasant life. But not Solomon. Solomon is not stoic. He has a large heart for people. How large? Well, God has given him a people who are as the sand on the seashore. And God has given him a heart that is as big as the sand on the seashore. God has given him a heart that cares for all the people. And I think that example of that last passage we looked at with the two women, when we see Solomon saying, you both claim it's your kid, bring me a sword. Here we're being told, this largeness of heart, we're being told that when he said, bring me a sword, he wasn't being cold-hearted and vicious, but that he really cared for these women. Cared for both of them, I think. The one who lied out of her grief and the one who was fearful for her child. And Solomon's heart was big enough in wisdom to care for both. Largeness of heart. In that way, I think this wisdom combined with largeness of heart is such a wonderful shadow pointing us ahead to a sympathetic high priest, Jesus Christ. Well, this wisdom, understanding of heart, uh, uh, understanding and large heart are such that he surpassed all the famous philosophers and scholars of his day. Verse 31. And this was true to such an extent that all the kingdoms around didn't just acknowledge he was smart, but they looked to receive his guidance. Verse 34. He was so great that instead of going to war with him out of fear of his brilliance, they instead sought his counsel in their affairs. And this wisdom has also been handed down to us, we're told, for several of the vast quantity of things. Here we have 3,000 proverbs. The children's coloring page, I haven't, I haven't counted, but the children's coloring page claims 500 of those made it into the book of Proverbs. So that, I think that sounds like about a fair estimate. We got quite a few out of the 3,000 Proverbs. Uh, his songs were 1,005. And the historic position, traditional position, is that we've received one of those. I think that's 
probably accurate. Uh, he wrote many things, and we have three books that traditionally have been tied to Solomon in God's word by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful thing when we see such a wise king to think we can go and we can, we can learn his feet today as well. Well, all of this is God showing us that he came through with the riches and the honor and uh, the, the blessings which he gave to Solomon. Uh, but obviously, you all know we, where we have to go next in looking at this passage. We, we need to go to the one who's greater than Solomon, as we will with all of the sermons, hopefully, in this series. So as we think about the greater than Solomon, I've, I was thinking about each of the three sections, the three main points this evening, and how they apply in terms of Christ. We can think about uh, Christ's prosperous wisdom as we think about all that prosperity we just considered um, in terms of verses, uh, verses 20 through 28 regarding Solomon. And in the New Testament, we find Christ greater at every point. We have the size of the population with Solomon, the size reflected the, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. But notice how it's applied in the New Testament. While the population is as the sands of the seashore and the territory of Solomon encompasses the boundaries of the promised land in Genesis 12, with the death of Solomon, all of that starts crumbling, doesn't it? Immediately the people die. Immediately the people lose their territory. Immediately they lose their riches. And yet in the New Testament we're shown Christ's reign sands of the seashore. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There, something better than what happened under Solomon takes place. Solomon's day only fulfilled half of what God promised Abraham, but it didn't fulfill the blessing of the whole world through Abraham's seed, at, at least not to a very great extent for the world. But here, here in Revelation 7, 9, we have Christ, his great multitude made up of every tribe, tongue, peoples, and languages. Regarding the territory, uh, the new heavens and the new earth have no boundary. You know, Ezekiel points us ahead to this at one point. He gives us... a. Uh, uh, the size of the temple, and if you went and actually measured it out, it was the size of all of Jerusalem. And he gives us the, the measurements of Jerusalem, and it's the size of all of Judea. And he gives us the, the boundaries of Israel as a whole, and it's what it was under Solomon. He's pointing us ahead to something bigger and better than Solomon, and that's what we have in the book of Revelation. That's what we have when Paul talks about the new heavens and the new earth, a place with no boundary. The reign of Christ knows no end. And regarding peace, again, Solomon died and the peace falls apart. He, he's not even dead in his grave. The people come to his son and complain, but with Christ, there will be no end of the peace forever and ever. 
Or we could think about another section of this passage with regard to Christ, Christ's honored reputation. As we um, think about that, that last section where uh, his fame is seen, verses 29 through 34. And, and we can reflect very basically simply that Christ's name and fame are much more adored. Uh, the people sought Solomon's advice, but one day all knees and all crowns will fall before this king. There won't be other kings coming to get advice because all the kings will bow before the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth, which will resound with his praises forever and ever. And then there's that third section of the chapter, Solomon's wise administration. And that too we see bigger and better in the new covenant age in Christ. Now, Solomon needed these wise counselors, and Christ doesn't. But isn't it interesting that Christ, who does not need others, still makes use of others in the administration of his kingdom here on earth? That's what we find in the New Testament. When Christ appoints, uh, Christ appoints uh, some overseers, pastors, and elders, some deacons to build upon the teaching of the apostles to direct the saints in the use of their gifts in the service of God. That's an administration. And he, on the throne, has his regional, he has his local administrators doing a work. He doesn't need it. He is the only wise God before whom all will be laid bare. And yet he has chosen to give us overseers in the church. He has given this for the use of discipline and correction. Reflect on what we said in the Shorter Catechism, that he subdues and he disciplines, he corrects, he guards his people. All of that is done through discipline. The administration of the sacraments and the proclamation of the word are his way of governing his people on the local level. And he does that through local administrators. The the fact that those officers are fallible, which we obviously are, uh, doesn't change the fact that Christ is the king who has established this administration. And I think that should mean two things, which sadly aren't always true in the church today, but but ought to be. First, I think addressed to church officers, is that if, if church officers are a part of Christ's wise administration, that then church officers ought to take their calling very seriously and humbly. Whether that's deacon or elder or pastor, we need to take our calling very humbly and seriously because we don't serve ourselves or our ambitions, but the king. And representing his interests and his reign is our calling. As he is gentle and kind and patient and sympathetic, so his administration must be. 
we fail in that, right? That's, that's where we see the sins of leadership uh, coming to bear. Christ is all these wonderful things, kind and patient and sympathetic, and we are sometimes, sometimes, hopefully not often, unsympathetic and impatient. That being said, where Christ rebukes and corrects, so his administrators also need to be clear with rebuke and correction. We sometimes fail there as well. We don't want to be a bad guy. But we we need to remember at times that we are his administrators. It's the king's name that is on the line here. So church officers need to take their calling very seriously and humbly. But the fact that, that church officers and church government is part of Christ's wise administration here on earth also means that believers ought to hold a high view of church government. We all, as believers, ought to think of church government as a gift from God, as his way of caring for us, not as a necessary evil or even uh, as the problem with Christianity. And isn't it true? We are very tempted, maybe in a very large way in the West, uh, because we are Protestant, we broke away from Rome and all of its tyranny, uh, we, we are independent or we are whatever, you know, fill in your blank. And so we have this negative view and it's what we see in evangelicalism in America right now, people wanting to be Christian without the church. Well, why are they really saying that? Well, they want to be Christian without the administrators. They want to be part of Christ's kingdom without Christ's rule. And that is sadly something that we might think at times as well, especially when we intimately uh, know the leadership or see its faults or see leadership, maybe even leadership torn apart within itself. And that's hard, but we need to retain this high view of Christ's administration In the preaching of the word, we have the king's spokesperson. In the administration of baptism, the elders serve as scribes and registers of the visible church. In the administration of the Lord's Supper, the elder acts as a a butler at the table of the king, administering in the right season the food which God has provided for his people. The uh, church discipline, we have... Christ's representatives who ought with largeness of heart to bring his loving discipline upon those whom he loves. Because remember, his discipline is what he brings on those he loves. And so even even church discipline we ought to see, as Jay Adams used to say, church discipline is every Christian's privilege. What a thought because it's in the administration of King Jesus. All this is his reign. So let us celebrate his wisdom by which he governs us today, even through fallible, sinful, and failing men, through which, though, he will, in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom, bring us to the eternal kingdom in the end of joy and glory, where he will cause us to feast with him forever and ever, and know the brightness of his face. Let's pray.